Please tell Brett that the class order thing is getting old. <laughs> I got good news for you, you know. Um, Pat talked about the, uh, the video, the offering video, and that it doesn't always work that way with, with God. You know, it's that God blesses you in other ways uh, instead of maybe multiplying. But today, Pat has agreed to give you back a hundred times out of his own pocket what you gave in the offering. So, if you've been uh, here on any of the occasions that I've been privileged to speak at New Life, you already know that I seriously look forward to this all year. Um, it's good for a preacher to periodically be away from his home church, I think. Um, I've always heard that preachers really ought to miss a few Sundays a year at his church because if he's good, he deserves it. Um, and if he's not good, you deserve it. Um, so welcome to those of you who are watching online, satellite, campus, internet, YouTube, Facebook. We're glad that you've joined us, however you've joined us here at New Life. Now, I, I do want to say, though, jokes about preachers, but whether somebody is a good preacher or not, sometimes they just fail. They just try, but the message just isn't very captivating. It fails to resonate. And you probably don't know this, but we preachers are aware when we're falling flat. I mean, we can feel it. We look out at the congregation, we see bored people, and if we've been doing this for any length of time, and by the way, Brett said something about me coming out of college, going to one church and staying there, but you've got a preacher that did the same thing. And uh, I, I love Brett. I have two preachers that I'm close friends with, and Brett's one of them. Um, but we can feel it. We look out at the congregation. We see bored people. It's painful. But if we've been doing this like Brett and I have for any length of time, we just accept the fact that we're not always on. I'll tell you the truth. Sometimes I'd like to stand up here and look at you the way you look at me. I mean, sometimes it's just... I remember the first time that I was acutely aware that I was floundering. I'd struggled in my study for days with a particularly difficult passage. I did the best I could with it, but from my view of the crowd, um, I knew that I was failing. And the longer I talked, the worse it got. You know, I tried to repair it, tried to make it better, didn't make it work. The longer I talked, the worse it got. And I'm telling you the truth, I just wanted it to be over. I wanted the sermon to be over, and I wanted to get out of there. I tried my best to wrap it up. I'd saved my best story for last, but that too just fell flat. I said a quick prayer, and I made a beeline for the exit. Um, the problem was the little country church that I was preaching in at the time. I was a student uh, at Cincinnati Bible College, and I was preaching in a little church in the hills of Kentucky. And it was a little country church that had that horrible tradition of the preacher standing at the back door and greeting everybody as they left. Um, I braced myself for the comments that I might get at the back door. And the people were kind. They didn't say anything ugly, but I could tell they were trying to think of something nice to say. And it was just embarrassing because we both knew it, it had been lousy. The crowd finally thinned out, and I caught sight of Miss Agnes. She was always one of the last ones out. She was elderly. She walked with a cane. It took her a while to make her way out of the church, and I got a little ray of hope because Miss Agnes and I had become friends despite our age difference, and uh, she was the sweetest, kindest soul. She was so encouraging, and I knew that she would have something nice to say. She was about a foot and a half shorter 
than me. And she finally hobbled up, and she took her little cane, and she purposefully hooked it over her arm, and she took my big hand in both of hers together, sandwiched it like this, and she looked up at me, and she patted my hand, and with the kindest eyes, she said, good try. When Brett told me about this series, Tough Questions, Biblical Answers, I knew exactly where I wanted to go. But I question whether or not I can communicate to you what's in my head in a way that will engage you. Because I don't want to confront a tough question so much as I want to confront a modern idea, which I think is detrimental to a meaningful, fulfilled life. So when this is over, please, if we lock eyes, please think of something to say that isn't good try, all right? When you get to be my age, you struggle more to recall distant memories, even if they made a significant impact on you. But there are just a couple of memories that I have that I still remember vividly. And the first one happened when I was about 11 years old. I was in the fifth grade, and I still remember that I rode bus number 77 in the little rural country village in which I lived. And I still remember uh, there were two boys on that bus. They were ninth graders. I was a fifth grader. These two ninth grade boys enjoyed stealing lunch money from the smaller kids. They were the tough guys. My father had heard about these two boys on the bus, and he told me to stand up for myself and that he better not hear that they took my lunch money. So on this particular day, I guess it was just my turn, they shook me down. But I said no. They were shocked. Uh, I guess nobody had ever said no before. And I figured I would never say no again because I'd be dead. And if I wasn't dead, I wouldn't ever need lunch money again because they'd be feeding me through a straw for the rest of my life. Anyway, I told them they couldn't have my lunch money. And these boys balled up their fists and started walking toward me. And they said, we'll just take it from you then. And I, uh, uh, I, I may or may not have wet my pants. They were only one seat away from me when the boy in the seat in front of me stood up. James was my friend. Um, he was in the seventh grader. He was older than me, and his parents didn't have much. And he wore the same clothes a lot, sometimes several days in a row. And like I said, he was older than me, but he didn't live too far away and so I would ride my bike over to his house sometimes, and we would play. It was a very rural area, and playmates were hard to find. And we would, we would play together. He was in the seventh grade, and those ninth graders liked to call him Fat Boy because he was pretty big, and he was kind of round. But when he stood up in the seat right in front of me on the bus, they stopped. And James said, not him, and not today. And I about passed out. The ninth graders kind of grinned and sneered at James. And they said, huh, you going to stop us? James said, I'm not going to stop you. I'm going to beat you until you cry. This was not the James I knew. He was super quiet, super passive, but he had just decided that these boys were not going to hurt his little friend. 
And there's no dramatic end to the story. They backed down. James sat back down. And I don't ever remember them trying it again. But there is a cool epilogue to the story. Two years later, when James himself was in the ninth grade, the high school coach saw him and suggested that he go out for football. Well, James had never even owned a football, and he quietly said no. When the coach explained that perhaps he could earn a college scholarship, I remember he showed up on the practice field in jeans and a flannel shirt. He had a knack for the game, and in 1976, he helped his team to the number two spot in the state. In his senior year, James Bunch was recruited by Coach Bear Bryant, and he was given a full ride to play football for Alabama's Crimson Tide. This is his upper deck football card. He earned a starting spot in his freshman year as an offensive guard, earning all Southeastern Conference honors. He led Alabama to two national championships in his junior and senior years, and he was an All-American in 1979. But that's not why I remember him. I remember him as an outcast seventh grader who did a dangerous thing and took up for me. There's another memory I have that actually isn't much different than the first one. In my junior year of high school, I was at a party with my friend Linwood Pryor. I had just gotten my driver's license, and so the whole idea of going to a party that your parents didn't approve of was a brand new thing for me. I had a 1946 Willis Jeep, and I drove that night. You could make 45 miles an hour if you were going downhill with a tailwind. Anyway, we got to this party, and we only knew a few people there. And at some point, I went to use the restroom, which was a tree behind the barn. That's how we did it back then. And when I got back there, or while I was back there, three big inebriated redneck boys appeared out of nowhere and surrounded me. And I was skinny back then, and basically they took one look and decided I needed a beat down. There was nowhere to run. The music was too loud. And I was too far from the house for anybody to hear my cries for help. The biggest one said, we don't like you. And we don't like to see people we don't like in our neighborhood. Now, I think, looking back on it, it was probably because some of the girls in his neighborhood uh, had been talking to me that night. And can you blame them? (laughs) They said, when you leave tonight, it will be to go to the hospital. Man, I went pale, my knees went wobbly, and I knew this was going to be really bad. The three of them took about two steps toward me, and then I heard the sweetest sound I have ever heard in my life. A voice said, Hey! It was my friend Linwood, and he may or may not have been indulging in illegally distilled beverages. He was short, all muscle, built like a fire hydrant. He was the center of the 1976 regional champion Lee Davis football team. Anyway, he yelled, and all four of us turned around to see him coming around the corner of the barn with the tire iron out of my Jeep in his hand and murder in his eyes. And I'll never forget what he said, and he might have been slurring his words just a little. He said, Somebody is going to the hospital tonight, but it ain't going to be him. 
Those guys scattered like roaches in the kitchen when you turn on the light. This is him at about 18 years old. Even at 63, there are some moments so wonderful (laughs) that you just never forget. He was a good friend, and I loved him like a brother. Ah, heck, who am I kidding? He wasn't a good friend. He is a good friend. This is the two of us at a restaurant together a couple of months ago. You know, a near-death experience like that tends to bind you together forever. Now, why in the world would I tell you these two stories? It's just this. I want to urge you this morning to not take the safe path through life. It's easy to set the cruise control and just coast through life safely. Don't get involved. Don't rock the boat. Just go with the flow. That's the safe life. And it's boring and it stinks. But it's an immensely popular notion today to play it safe. Some call it the cult of safety or safetyism. Psychologists today are calling it the psychosis of fear. But it's just this idea of eliminating all possibility of threat to reduce the chances that you'll ever do anything that may put you in any kind of danger or risk. We may have raised a generation of people that are terrified of any kind of harm. We may have created a culture that is so afraid that it never tries anything risky or is frightened to stand up for what's right if it goes against current thought of what's acceptable. Now, there's kind of been a pushback from the whole cult of safety thing, and so we see a lot of young people today who aren't afraid to do parkour from four stories up or free rock climbing without ropes, but we're scared to death we might offend somebody. We're scared that we might be labeled an extremist or, God forbid, somebody calls us a hater. Or we're afraid we'll get canceled because we told the truth. You know, it's been said that truth offends some people. I don't think that's right. I think that's wrong. I think the truth offends everybody, just at different levels. Today I want to tell you the truth about wasting your life playing it safe. I want to confront this crazy modern idea, and I want to warn you that it is detrimental to a meaningful, fulfilled life. And this might not make sense at first, but stick with me. I want to urge you to do exactly the opposite. I want to urge you to go against the flow and to be truly counterculture and live a dangerous life. Let me call your attention to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 54. Here's what it says. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, You want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy him? Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you that those you sent before us did not live a safe life. 
I thank you, Lord, that you inspired them to live a dangerous life. Show us, Lord, when it is that you want us to be out there on the edge and dangerous. And today, Lord, I would ask a simple prayer that I hope everybody here at New Life will ask them, that we'll pray the same thing right now, and that's just, Lord, speak to me. Lord, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the apostles James and John were tough guys. Uh, they lived dangerously. They were watermen. Uh, I live uh, on the northern neck, as, as Brett said, where uh, I live between the Rappahannock and the Potomac and the Chesapeake Bay. We still have some old school watermen in that area. But they were watermen when you had to build and repair your own boat. You had to make your own nets. You had to haul a net full of fish aboard the boat without the use of winches. And then you had to row back to shore if you didn't have any wind. All of that without the benefit of life jackets and Coast Guard. These guys were dangerous guys. And all that is hard, demanding, difficult, and dangerous work. When they met Jesus I want you to remember that these guys, these guys had all that longshoremen still in them. They're rough boys. They're tough guys. The people of Samaria don't welcome Jesus, and James and John don't appreciate it. Other men might have said, well, Jesus, they don't want us here. Guess we should just keep walking. Not James and John. They say, want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Hey, Jesus, you want us to light them up? These people are snobs, Jesus. You want us to punch their lights out? I'm not saying that was the correct response. I'm just saying these guys were looking out for their teacher, their friend, their mentor. James and John were a lot like my friends, James and Linwood. Jesus had a nickname for these brothers. He called them Sons of Thunder. And I bet they were loud and in your face, never content to sit back and wa watch life go by. I think they were in it. You know what I mean? And when a wrong was perpetrated, they weren't likely to let it go. That's not a safe life. That's a dangerous life. And I want us to focus for just a minute on the Apostle James. He lived a dangerous life. James may have had a dangerous life reputation. He's as tough as leather. They work hard and they play hard. No shortage of foul mouths and crudity. They don't get paid unless they catch fish. And so when they get into good fishing, they'll work night and day on little or no sleep. No video games or internet, no hand sanitizers, no showers on those boats. They spend their days knee-deep in fish, so I envision James to be one tough Dude, I'll bet before you saw him, you could smell him. And when the Samaritans don't roll out the red carpet for him, they ask Jesus if they can call down fire on him and destroy him. John was probably asking permission while James was trying to borrow a lighter. We pictured the apostles, we, we picture the apostles as these quiet, gentle men following Jesus around, patting little children on the head and listening to sermons in a meadow filled with flowers. I don't think so. I really don't think so. These guys had a past. They had a history. They had reputations. 
before they met Jesus, moms with little kids would probably cross the street to avoid them if they saw them coming. And I, th I think our boy James had a dangerous reputation. Now, I'm not saying you should all go out and cultivate a similar persona, not at all. You, you be who you are for Jesus. But what I'm saying is that in this culture, where you are supposed to fit into whatever is the current it way to be, where you are practically ordered what causes to support and what you're supposed to march and protest against, I'm saying that God can use you with a stellar reputation and He can use you with a dangerous reputation. I think, in fact, that James had a dangerous reputation. And James became a dangerous Christian in, in a good way in a great way. Because, you know, a lot of people wear the name. Uh, they're on the roll of a church somewhere. They have a Bible and a fish bumper sticker, but they're safe. They're no threat to Satan or the abortion industry or child pornographers or a crazy culture that thrives on suspicion and division. They're no threat to the countless confused and the many depressed and deluded and defeated whom Satan has got fooled. They're safe. They don't use their gifts for the kingdom. They've learned how to say no to any request. They know how to keep their mouth shut about Jesus, and they've learned how to wiggle out of any commitment. They're safe. And they're no threat to the devil. They never pray until they're in trouble. They never serve without complaining. And they won't give without an audience. Safe people pose no threat to evil. They get on their social media high horse and talk about all the safe causes. And they display an appropriate amount of virtue signaling. But they never do anything to make a difference. They're all talk. Safe people complain, but they don't go to the border and try to help. They tell you to pray for storm victims, but they've never been to Tornado Alley to help clean up. They talk a lot about who is offended, but they've never been to Mexico or Haiti or Venezuela or El Salvador to sit with a hungry family or to love on an unloved child. They see wickedness and they see real abuse, but they don't lift a finger to make anything better. They're safe people. They're no threat to evil. And that's why they're safe. In contrast, though, dangerous people are very different. Dangerous people call attention to good. And they post positivity. They reject division on any level. And they wade through all of the pig slop to find the truth. Dangerous people love like, they're no, like there's no tomorrow. They give like money grows on trees. And they defend the weak as if they're not afraid of the consequences. That's what dangerous people do. And when they do that, they become our heroes. Lou Gehrig played first base for the Yankees for 15 years. They called him the Iron Horse of Baseball. 
He hit home runs in seven different World Series, but that's not what he's known for. He's a legend because he played 2,130 games without missing a single one. Every time they played, he was on the field, in the game, for 15 years. When he retired, they x-rayed his hands, and they found that every finger had been broken. Some had been broken twice, and two of them had been broken three times. But he never missed a game. He didn't choose safe, and when he paid the price for that, he played hurt. Live dangerously. Emmett Smith redefined toughness in the last game of the 1993 season with the Cowboys and the Giants fighting for the NFC East and home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Emmett played the entire game with a sprained and separated shoulder. He carried the ball a team record of 42 times that day. 42 carries, 10 receptions. He produced 229 of the 339 yards the Dallas offense had that day, playing with a sprained and separated shoulder. Nate Newton related that Emmett told them in the huddle that they should block for him and then run closely behind him until he was tackled so they could pick him up and the other team wouldn't know how hurt he was. Once the Cowboys coach Jimmy Johnson sent Lincoln Coleman in to take Emmett's place. Lincoln ran out to the huddle and he turned around and ran back to the bench. Johnson was livid. He asked him what he was doing back at the bench. Coleman said, Emmett told me to get out. He's not coming out of the game. The Cowboys won 16-13 to and went on to win the Super Bowl. Live dangerously because legends are never made of people who choose the safe life. And it's not easy to live that kind of life. It's not safe to live like that. Dan see, dangerous people don't do down. They don't do down. They don't back down. They don't often slow down. They refuse to quiet down or shut down. They just don't do down. Dangerous people do up. They stand up, stay up, pay up, pray up, and lay up treasures in heaven. And when they get there, when they get there, I think there's going to be a long line of people waiting to shake their hand and to say, thank you. My friends James and Linwood became people in my life that I'll never forget because they took the dangerous path. And you know, having lived this long, I am now of the opinion that a safe life is not a very memorable life. It's a mundane life. And I think God calls us to live, man. I think God calls us to make a difference. And that's never safe. Hey, it's dangerous to stand up for what's right. It's dangerous to tell the truth without regard for the accepted norms. It's dangerous to go against the flow. It's dangerous to stand up for the little guy. See, here's the thing. I believe there is moral and there is evil. I believe there is right and wrong. I believe there is good and bad. 
And the easy thing to do, the safe thing to do, is to try to not notice the difference between the two. We see that a lot in our culture today. The safe thing is to pretend you can't tell the difference between the two. That's the safe life. Because you don't have to take a, a stand. And if you're safe, then you are not dangerous to the evil. You might as well be playing for their team. My friend, my friends James and Linwood were never safe people. They saw wrong and they stepped in to make it right. That was dangerous. I'm telling you, people like them are remembered 40 and 50 years later by the people who they weren't afraid to stand next to. We remember them. So live dangerously. It was in Super Bowl IV when the Kansas City Chiefs were playing the Minnesota Vikings. Kansas City's star tight end, Fred Arbanus, took a brutal hit at the line of scrimmage, and his eye popped out. True story. Now, at that time, very few people knew that Fred Arbanus had a glass eye. If you're a tight end in the NFL, you don't want people to know that you have a real blind side. So Arbanus takes the hit, his eye pops out and rolls across the grass. Arbanus just calls for the water boy, picks up his eye, swishes it around in the bucket, and pops it back in. Tommy Bell was an attorney from Louisville, Kentucky. He was a member of Southland Christian Church, and he was a legendary NFL referee, and he was calling the game that day. Tommy Bell stood there with his jaw dropped uh, watching Arbanus put his glass eye back in. Now, it was no secret that Fred Arbanus didn't think much of Tommy Bell. Tommy was a referee, and Fred didn't think he was a very good referee. But Bell walks up to Arbanus, and he says, Fred, I can't believe what I'm seeing. You are a star athlete. You are in the Super Bowl. You are at the top of your game, at the peak and the pinnacle of your career, and you only have one eye. What in the world would you do if you lost sight in your other eye? Without a thought, Arbana said, well, I guess I'd become a referee like you, Mr. Bell. <laughs> Look, Fred Arbanus could have decided to play it safe, but he chose a dangerous path, and the world doesn't remember the safe people. They remember the ones who chose to live a little dangerously, a little out there on the edge. And I'll say it again, people who step up and aren't afraid to stand out are remembered 40 and 50 years later by the people they weren't afraid to stand next to. I will never forget James and Linwood who took a dangerous path and decided to stand next to me. Live dangerously. There are people who need to hear what you know. Let's just break it down to its most simple form. There are people who need to hear what you know. And it feels dangerous to seek those people out and to tell them the truth. 
but they will remember you for a long, long time if you step out and live dangerously. Dangerous Christians are a real problem for the Prince of Darkness and his agents walking among us. They write letters to editors and they post positivity and truth and they go to Haiti or Mexico or they serve food in an inner city mission. They contribute to missionary, pro-life, benevolent, or outreach causes. Dangerous Christians know when to talk about Jesus gently with the skeptic and passionately with the desperate. In short, they want to change the world for the better. And that's why they're dangerous. People came before you, you know. People came before you. They started with nothing but a young preacher from Pennsylvania who wanted to reach people for Jesus. They could have just played golf on Sunday morning at one of the courses around. I'm not a golfer. I'm sure Chantilly and Centerville has some great golf courses somewhere. They could have played golf on Sunday mornings, but they didn't want to sit back and play it safe. They wanted to start a church in Chantilly that would really reach people. And they won't be forgotten for that. Don't waste a single day, especially, and I should have said this when I started, but I especially want to say this to young people. Um, that's one of the things that's difficult for me to get used to is to call other people young people. But now I'm 63. If you're young, don't waste a single day playing it safe. We need you guys to live dangerously. And I'm going to tell you this, and then I'm done. God wants to use you. And I don't know how God wants to use you, but I'm absolutely sure it won't be accomplished by playing it safe. Live dangerously. Pray with me, please. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to this hazardous world and that his whole life was lived dangerously. I thank you for those men that he pulled around him, men and women that he pulled around him, but specifically for those apostles. And they lived dangerously and they paid the price for living dangerously. It didn't end in this, in a worldly way to look, it didn't end well for them. But they lived dangerously and we remember them today and we are indebted to them. And so Lord, I just pray you'll help us to have the fortitude and courage to listen for your voice and then when we hear it, to be willing to live dangerously. Thank you for new life. Bless them to be dangerous Christians. In your son's name I pray it. Amen.